today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Many women are being misdiagnosed or mislabeled due to either presence or lack thereof of that polycystic ovarian morphology. So tons of women on Instagram will follow me and say, well, all of these things sound like me that you mentioned, but I don't have cysts on my ovaries, so I know I don't have it. And I'm like, okay, let's take a step back here. You only need two of the three diagnostic criteria, (laughs) which I'll talk about. And if you have two of those three, then you fit in that PCOS category. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Natalie Underberg, all about PCOS, our polycystic ovary syndrome. She is a prolific educator on the topic. So I couldn't think of a better person to bring in and answer all your top questions. What is it? What are the common symptoms? How do you test for it? And what do you do about it if you've been told you have PCOS? Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Natalie, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you are one of the first people I thought of when we get all the DMs and the questions and the comments about PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and I thought, who better than to have you on the show to cover all the basics? There are always so many questions around PCOS, rightfully so, and we're going to answer those today as we move through. So I hope you are ready to go because I have a whole bunch. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Yes. Amazing. Well, before we get started, why don't you let everybody know a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into focusing on PCOS, and then we'll launch from there. Totally. So I am a functional medicine practitioner with a background in chiropractic. I never actually practiced chiropractic medicine at all. I went straight into my IFM training basically right in school. So I kind of always knew right off the bat, I wanted to do functional medicine, but I knew I didn't want to go the traditional route. So a little bit about my background, I was a pre-med student and actually wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and worked in a hospital setting under a surgeon for about six months and like fully thought that that's what I wanted to do. And after about six months, I was like, I just really feel like we are missing the mark here with root cause medicine. And I felt like the lifestyle was so under utilized and under talked about. And it was much more heavy on conventional medicine and just surgery and medications. I was like, I really feel like there's a whole subset of medicine that is being completely neglected. And I really want to be able to focus on that. And then my personal background, I was diagnosed with PCOS in, oh man, when I was 17 and I virtually got no answers and no explanation when I got my diagnosis. It was like, hey, here's a packet of birth control pills, which I actually was handed at the age of 14, which because I had heavy periods and painful periods. So that's what they gave me. And then I had to actually push for the PCOS diagnosis at 17 
with some of my own research that I did, I was in some like pre-nursing classes in my local college in my last year of high school. And I was studying PCOS and I was like, this sounds like me. So I asked for that and finally got a diagnosis, but really was given no answers. So the only thing I knew, which was what was available on Google, and that was, I'm never going to be able to have kids. Infertility is my destiny. I'm going to just continue gaining weight rapidly. And my only treatments options are birth control and metformin. So I would say that the next two years after that was like a really dark, scary place. And with no mentorship and no guidance around PCOS, I remember carrying that diagnosis around like a crown on my head, being like, I would meet a guy and I would start dating and I'd be like, just so you know, I'm never gonna be able to have kids. Like literally that was, I probably told a handful of men that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how awful. Like looking back, these guys are really like, oh, not gonna date this girl. So I just feel so bad for the women out there today who are in our DMs asking us these questions, legitimately feeling the same way I was feeling 14 years ago or so. And it's just really sad. It makes me sad because I'm like, we know so much more now, yet the general population and the layperson still is not educated enough because the information simply is not readily available for the general population still. Yeah. And while there are pros and cons to social media, for sure. Yes. One of the big pros are things like this. One of the big things, pros is the number of totally amazing educators like yourself who are putting this information out there so that when women are reading this going, Holy crap, that sounds like me. I think that's me. Totally. Because as you know, it's PCOS is like one of the number one endocrine diagnoses that a woman can have. And women go years without a diagnosis, like you, like years they're having no cycle, irregular cycle, all these crazy symptoms. And it gets brushed off as, well, that's what happens to girls in puberty. That's what happens. Or we don't know what's happening. Here, just take this pill. And only until maybe for some people's story, Later in life, they go off the pill choosing to have children and it's like right back to those puberty symptoms again or teenage symptoms of no cycle, really irregular cycle and all the symptoms come back and they struggle and that's so not fair. Yeah, and then even I've seen the pill has masked their symptoms for so long that they come off of it at 30, 31, 32, 33. They never knew they even had PCOS because their symptoms were being managed, air quotes, for those who can't see this. And they just didn't know the whole time. So they weren't managing with diet and lifestyle properly. They didn't know that blood sugar management was so important. They didn't know any of these things. They're not aware of how to track their cycles. So they're literally in their early 30s, unaware of all of the most important management strategies of their condition that was being masked the entire time they were on the pill. So like, that's a huge problem I see too. And then they feel like they have just been completely blindsided. That's the biggest emotion that I hear from women. I had in practice, I had a number of IVF and I have no issue with IVF whatsoever, but these couples would come in or a woman would come in about to start IVF or maybe in the middle of IVF or on a break from IVF. The first or second round didn't work. And so she came to see me. And when I get the story, I was like, oh, when were you diagnosed with PCOS? And they were like, what? What? Yep. Yeah. I'm with what? I don't, what are you talking about? And I thought, oh, what a disservice. And I'm so grateful IVF is available for those who can utilize it. But at the same time, I thought, imagine if somebody in your teenage years had said, early 20s even, had said to you, you know what? It's PCOS and we need to manage this well, and let me explain it to you. So actually, that's like the first question. <laughs> Obviously, people listening, some people listening have PCOS and know it, but for those yeah. who have no idea, this is the first time ever hearing it. What is it? Like all the basics, who, what, where, when, and why, and how around PCOS? Yeah. So polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome is what PCOS stands for. 
And really, it's just a big constellation of symptoms lumped into one diagnosis, right? So I like to highlight the word syndrome because this can be any combination of signs and symptoms that often show up together, as we know, right? So in the case of PCOS, this could be menstrual irregularities, excess facial hair, cystic acne, excess weight gain, fatigue, dysglycemia, you name it. And what's crazy is as many as one in seven women now are dealing with PCOS. The statistic just keeps changing and it's becoming more prevalent every year when I check the stats. It used to be one in 15, then it was one in 10 just when I first started learning about it. And now I think it's one in seven. I think it could be even closer to one in five. That's my own like anecdotal evidence there. But with what I'm seeing in practice, it's so much more common now, which there's a lot of things that I'll, I'll get into that I think are playing a part in that. But I think that it's such a underdiagnosed condition and also overdiagnosed in some ways too. But as many as one in seven women are dealing with it. Now, one of the problems that I'm seeing and that I do encounter a lot with this is that thorough investigations are truly not being done when it comes to a PCOS diagnosis. So a lot of women are just slapped with this label, sent on their way, given a prescription pad, whatever it may be, and they truly don't understand it and they've never had that thorough workup done. And then also there's this big myth because of the name that you have to have cysts on your ovaries to qualify for a PCOS diagnosis. So which is just simply not true. And many women are being misdiagnosed or mislabeled due to either presence or lack thereof of that polycystic ovarian morphology. So tons of women on Instagram will follow me and say, well, all of these things sound like me that you mentioned, but I don't have cysts on my ovaries. So I know I don't have it. And I'm like, okay, let's take a step back here. You only need two of the three diagnostic criteria, (laughs) which I'll talk about. And if you have two of those three, then you fit in that PCOS category, which I would love to see an expansion upon this criteria oh, one day. Yes. I would yes. love, maybe you and I can spearhead this. <laughs> yes. I talk about this probably in every podcast. I'm like, we need a more expansive criteria because ruling in a large majority of the female population with just three diagnostic criteria to me is absolutely insane. That's what we're working with, right? And as evidence-based practitioners, that's what we will do. But we also have to use our clinical brain. And at the same time, I actually personally start to look for a combination of other symptoms. I've kind of put together my own little criteria that I look for, along with obviously the Rotterdam criteria as well. But it's like when I start noticing these patterns, I'm like, okay, we need to start looking further, right? Yeah. I used to call it a spectrum, the PCOS spectrum. Even like you, I followed the Rotterdam criteria, which don't worry, everyone, I am going to ask her about, but I would follow the Rotterdam criteria, but still I'm like, so it's kind of gray area. Yeah. (laughs) And I I feel it's PCOS can be, and some people sort of on the spectrum where, yes, you clearly have all the symptoms. This is a slam dunk. Let's work on this. Or you're approaching that, or some of these symptoms are off. I need to investigate this further. And I totally agree with you. We need to... More. We need to expand it. And along with the spectrum, we also have like a severity spectrum. And that might be what you're talking about too, of PCOS. And it's like, what phase in your journey are you in? Like, for instance, I have PCOS, but I ovulate consistently every month. I no longer have the cystic acne I had 10 years ago. I don't have the excess androgens that I had 10 years ago, but I've also been managing it really strategically for about seven years. So it's very different. Like if you ran my labs right now, you'd be like, Natalie, you don't have PCOS. Which happens. Yes. Have you noticed that? That happens where women will get diagnosed. They will work very hard on their health and then they will get blown off. 
you don't have PCOS, your labs look great. I'm like, of course they look great. We've been working like hell on them. <laughs> yeah. And then they can't get their labs reordered or retested because their last set of labs was normal. Yeah. That's a big problem I'm seeing. And it's like being aware of the spectrum and where women are at because also postpartum, that's a whole new journey that they're in too, right? Or if they're going through a phase of life where they're really stressed, they're planning a wedding, they have a death in the family, a big stressor happens, and then all these symptoms can come flooding back. And then that's where I see people getting really frustrated because they're like, well, I thought I cured my PCOS, <laughs> thought I reversed my PCOS. And it's like, well, this is a phase of life that you're in and PCOS is a lifelong condition. We can manage it really well and really strategically, but you will be on the spectrum of some point for your whole life. And it's just... Being really aware of how to manage those stressors is huge. Yeah, 100%. Now, of course, I'm going to ask you about the Rotterdam criteria because that is the go-to criteria that most pretty predominantly all of us use. And especially because I want to focus in a little bit more on the cyst part. I'm sure you have as well. I've had patients who've said, I had a cyst. Like I had a cyst rupture, one. A cyst. Yeah. A cyst. Therefore, I am PCOS. And I really want to Correct. clarify a cyst versus what we look for in polycystic, if that's one of the diagnostic criteria for you. But I'll let you talk about what is the Rotterdam criteria. Yeah. So this is a criteria we go off of. So in order to qualify someone for a PCOS diagnosis, we really look for someone to fit in the criteria of having two of the three of the following. So the first being the presence of the polycystic ovarian morphology or the cysts in plural on the ovaries, which we now know are more like little tiny follicles. And then the second criteria being ovulatory dysfunction. So this could be missed periods or anovulatory cycles. And then the third being the presence of excess androgens based on labs. So excess testosterone, excess DHEA. Um, this could be hirsutism, signs of hirsutism, excess facial hair, excess acne, things like that. So you do need to have currently two of the three of those following criteria to fit into the PCOS diagnostic criteria at the moment. But there's other things I still look for. I'm sure you do as well, like signs of inflammation, insulin resistance, chronic stressors, chronic adrenal dysfunction, things like that, that all kind of clue me into this patient might fit into this category and they might just not be aware yet. So we need to dig a little deeper. But those are the three. Those are the three that we're currently working on until Carrie and I develop a new diagnostic system. <laughs> and I do, I'm sure you know, I will have the occasion, myself included, where women will go, oh, I absolutely have a chin hair. I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Girl, we all have a chin hair or a few, but it's definitely, again, on that spectrum, those with true hirsutism, when if you look up the definition online, if you're listening along to this and Google it, face basically facial hair or hair in places you don't want, right? And it's usually a lot more, which is different than your ethnicity. You may be of an ethnicity where you, mom, grandma, your aunties were pretty hairy in the sideburn area or on the chin or down the neck, but that can overlap PCOS as well. So we don't want to discard that. And the same goes for acne. I absolutely have had somebody say, oh yeah, I, I break out before my period as well. Maybe PCOS, that's not typically the kind of acne we're talking about. Usually it's the cystic acne pretty consistently for, for a lot of women. Yeah. And it's funny, an interesting thing that I personally dealt with in my life is not only in my younger years did I have cysts on my ovaries, but I actually developed these cystic-like nodules in my lungs. Ooh. So it looked like Wegner's. I was actually diagnosed with Wegner's. But when I got control of my diet and my lifestyle, the cysts on my ovaries and in my lungs went away, which was insane. So it's like, 
I think there's so much more that goes into the development of these cysts, which I explained to a lot of people, it's highly inflammatory. Like when you get your inflammation under control, a lot of times those cysts will go away or disappear. And they oftentimes don't resurface. Sometimes they do, but I even had that show up in my lungs and in other parts of my body. So it was just crazy how much, I mean, it really is a like complete multi-system metabolic disorder. And just in my case, it, it affected other systems like my lungs. So super crazy, but wanted to add that in. Wow. And not common, but I'm sure somebody listening. Yes, not common. <laughs> well, I test to like, oh my gosh, I do develop cysts in other places as well and never put the correlation together. Knowing that the body plays as a whole, and if you pluck one end of the spider web, the whole web vibrates and it's the same in your body. By now, you know women are going, well, where does this come from? You sort of alluded to it earlier. There's research, there's a lot of research into PCOS, but also I want to hear just in your years of experience, where, how with PCOS? How does somebody develop it? Why is it now one in seven? And don't worry, then we're going to get into things like lab testing. Absolutely. Okay. So from what I found, I like to call it drivers of PCOS. So root cause drivers kind of can be synonymous, but some of the main ones that I have seen, which I'm sure you have as well, insulin resistance, a huge driver, right? Just blood sugar dysregulation, lack of proper blood sugar control, which I believe starts in childhood, I was listening to a podcast recently and it was talking about girls and adolescents and how the insulin resistant type symptoms actually started in adolescence and their hunger cravings and things like that. And it was all due to the types of foods that they were exposed to, the standard American diet they were exposed to, all these different things. So the insulin resistance can start as young as adolescence. And in my case, I remember being that adolescent, right? So that was totally my picture, my pattern. Also inflammation, which we know insulin resistance and inflammation, they're like this vicious cycle, right? They just play off of each other. So inflammation, which we know can be driven by gut infections, can be driven by dysbiosis, stress, you name it. We have to get to the root of what is driving each person's both insulin resistance and inflammation. So I find that this a lot of times can be toxin exposure, environmental toxins. So mold, BPA, fragrances, you name it. One of the very first things I do for all my clients is I talk to them about toxins. Because I'm like, if you're living this toxic soup, I can only do so much for your hormones. You're being bombarded from all angles with toxins, like glyphosate in your food. Like, I'm not going to be able to do my job until we remove those toxins because we're going to be swimming upstream. So the next thing to think about is stressors. So this could be chemical. This could be environmental. This could be emotional. I have found also a correlation between childhood trauma and sexual trauma and PCOS. I've also seen a correlation with women who have toxic maternal relationships and PCOS. So that is something that like I start going through my intake and I'm like, tell me about the relationship with your mother. And it's like almost always there's some sort of toxic relationship with a maternal figure. So that's just once again, anecdotal evidence. I actually want to stop on that for a second for the people, for everyone listening when Natalie says that question, tell me about the relationship between you and your mother. If you have that immediate ugh, response or you have that immediate of like curl your lip, raise your eyebrow, make a face, you know immediately that's a, that visceral response. That's your answer. You have your answer. But if you smile, if you're like sort of phase that question out, <laughs> it doesn't make an issue, you have your answer. And so I find questions like that, does that immediate visceral response, there you go, listen to it. Such a good point. Because a lot of people are 
in denial. And they also suppress those emotions. Like when you've experienced trauma, your subconscious really does suppress that because it's a protective mechanism. So I see that a lot with childhood trauma. I ask people, tell me about your childhood. Was it stressful? Was it traumatic? What was your living situation like? And things come up and they're like, oh, I totally forgot this happened. And they start kind of unveiling everything that they have just kind of suppressed for a really long time. So things like that can really affect our health, especially if it's unresolved trauma. And I have seen this with like the adrenal dysfunction type patterns of PCOS, right? So that's another thing, adrenal stress patterns. I know I see this a lot in night shift workers, gymnasts, high level athletes, the CrossFitters who typically appear to be very, very fit based on their outer appearance, but their hormonal profile is very, very dysregulated. So a lot of people don't realize that the type of activity that they're doing is actually stressing their body more than their body can actually handle. So especially when women try to keep up with men in a physical setting, that's where we run into problems because women are not men, right? Women are not small men. I've heard people say that, right? So that's another thing to think about too, as one of the main drivers for PCOS is like I mentioned, gymnasts and high-level athletes, that starts in their their formative years. We have these adrenal stress patterns. We have hormone dysregulation, and it just kind of snowballs into their 20s and 30s. And then when they go to get pregnant, that's actually one of the populations that I have the most trouble with is those really young, fit, thin women who have been athletes their whole lives. Now, it's always possible if you're listening always possible for you to still get pregnant, still have a baby. It is, and it can just be a trickier situation because we really have to lean into the self-care and the taking care of your adrenals, making sure your minerals are balanced, things like that. So there's so much that goes into that pattern too. And then obviously genetics, right? Genetic factors, which I feel like isn't actually talked about that much with PCOS, but we do know based on research, right? Studies have shown that we can actually inherit some of these metabolic issues such as pancreatic beta cell dysfunction and insulin resistance. When we study families of patients with PCOS, we can actually see that insulin increased insulin levels were found among first degree relatives. So we even know that mothers and fathers of PCOS patients have an increased prevalence of glucose dysregulation and type 2 diabetes. So it's kind of crazy. And we know that our genes don't determine our destiny, but we can turn on those genes with the standard American diet, with stressors, trauma, all those triggers we've just talked about, the toxins. So it is something to think about that when you have PCOS, it is very possible to live a normal life. We also have to think about all of the factors that kind of led up to that diagnosis too, and what our lifestyle has been like. And I'm really glad that you said that our genes don't determine our destiny. I think sometimes I've been reading, last year I did a presentation on some of the genetics, just, it was like an update on the genetics of PCOS. And it was so fascinating to me because the all in PCOS is not my expertise, but the amount of research predominantly, unfortunately in mice and rats, but still they're getting there on just little things like the conversion to make testosterone is faster genetically in those with some people with PCOS. The receptor to bind testosterone or DHEA is more sensitive. It's sort of a diva and dramatic. And so when testosterone binds to it, poof, you grow more hair than somebody else, maybe genetically because that was passed down. But what I love is that you say our genes aren't destiny. And I give this example. So I have one of the genes for celiac disease, which for those who don't know is the autoimmune. I cannot and do not eat wheat. So routinely, when I first got diagnosed, I had so many people say, did you do in celiac disease? Did you do an endoscopy? Did you get the scope down your mouth, down your throat, into your stomach to see if you actually had celiac? I mean, I had doctors, primary care doctors who were like, 
oh, you have to get the endoscopy. Otherwise you won't know. I said, I don't want the endoscopy because I'm just going to give up wheat. Yeah. It's that simple. And they were like, well, why? Why would you do that if you don't know? What if you don't have celiac? I said, I don't have it yet. What is going to activate my genes? Well, one of the big triggers is probably going to be routinely eating wheat for the rest of my life. Why would I routinely do the thing that's probably going to activate the gene? And so it's the same in general, like with this PCOS conversation, but at genes at large, just because you have it doesn't mean it's automatically dialed all the way up. We will talk about ways, we're going to talk about testing next, but then like, how do we dial it down so it's not is active, is on, is problematic for that person? Yeah. I mean, I have the Alzheimer's gene. Like, I think I'm homozygous for the Alzheimer's gene. Oh, good gracious. Yeah. So, (laughs) and it makes sense when I look at the women in my family. But for me, I mean, I think about all the time, I'm like, what can I do on a daily basis that is going to prevent that gene from expressing, right? And I know like choline supplementation is really, really important. I try to eat tons of healthy quality eggs, things like that, that I know are going to feed my brain with the nutrients I want. So it's like a prime example of like, I'm very aware that I have that gene, but instead of sitting around stressing about the fact that I might develop Alzheimer's, I'm going to think about what I can do in my daily life to make sure that gene expression does not show itself. Absolutely. And I mean, you brought up a good point too with just genes and lifestyle and being aware of what that could look like. I mean, in the sense of PCOS or in the case of PCOS, I feel like there's so much emphasis put on blood sugar and weight gain. But it's really such a small piece of the puzzle because women with PCOS, up to 40% of women with PCOS also deal with gut-related issues like IBS. 60% are more likely to have mood disorders. And then they're also three times more likely to deal with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, the immune form of hypothyroidism. So I was just thinking about that. Now, just because you are three times more likely to have Hashimoto's, does that mean you're going to develop it? No. And does it mean that it can't be managed? No. Right? So that's something that I like women to think about because we do as educators put out these stats and then we get frightened DMs from people being like, does this mean I have Hashimoto's or does this mean I'm going to get IBS? And it's like, no, but we do see this correlation between the two. And then also for me, I've seen a correlation with gluten and inflammation and also gluten Hashimoto's. We have good evidence on that. And the suggestion I make to a lot of women is it might be best to proactively remove that from your diet. Like if we know that's going to flare up autoimmunity and you are three times more likely to have an autoimmune condition, it might be best that we remove those foods that could trigger that autoimmunity, especially because they've been so modified, right? So, and that's not like a blanket statement, but it's like just something to think about. And if you do have celiac or type one, they travel in pairs, right? Hashimoto's, celiac, and type one. So if you have either of those, I also say might be wise to eat a more autoimmune-friendly diet. So general, you kind of got me on the little autoimmune. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's really good to think about because unfortunately, as you know firsthand, a lot of people listening are going to their primary care and they're not getting any of this information. They have a six to eight minute visit. They've been told they have PCOS, but it's not a problem. Take this pill. And maybe verbally, they might say diet and exercise is helpful. Six to eight minutes later, they're out the door and that was it. And so they don't know to ask, what about celiac? What about my blood sugar and insulin? What about my thyroid health? What about my adrenal health? What about, I do have IBS. I was told that was normal. It's like, ooh, normal and common are two different things. IBS is very common. It does not mean it's normal. 
Right. And also IBS is a blanket statement, yes. blanket diagnosis. Like it's not a true diagnosis. It just kind of means we don't know what the heck is going on in your gut. So we're going to label you with this. And oftentimes we find out it's, it's driven by SIBO and it's driven by a fungal overgrowth or whatever it may be. And it's funny because I'm just like, why don't we dig a little deeper into that? But it's just not happening in the primary care setting. Like that's just what we're finding. And also when people go into their primary care doctor, they're told clean up your diet. What does that even mean to the general population? That could mean going on doing keto. That could mean going to Weight Watchers. That could mean going on the Atkins diet for 90s babies, right? Like we, like most women don't know what clean up your diet means. So I feel like the lack of education, like you were mentioning in the primary care setting is a big part of the problem that we're dealing with right now. Yeah. And they just don't have enough time. I mean, the last time I saw my primary care, I don't think I was in there for four minutes. Totally. And I truly, I did need something quickly, but I mean, it was... I was brought in by the nurse, got my vitals. They walked in quick, walked right out. And I thought, oh, oh, it's a good thing I'm in the healthcare system. But I oh my know. goodness, I feel so bad for everybody else. I really, truly empathize. And for anyone listening, this happens to all of us. I mean, yeah, all of us. And my primary care knows I'm a doctor. Didn't yes. care. Like was like, I'm out. <laughs> yes, this happens. I just saw someone this morning. She's a DNP, nurse practitioner happened to her this morning. She went, she said she got gaslit by her doctor, all these different things. And she is a nurse practitioner. This also happens to health coaches. This happens to chiropractors. Like you are not alone if this is your experience because it happens no matter what your level of education. And it really is, I believe, because they're handcuffed to this like insurance payer system and they are put in this very limited time bubble that they have. And also the training is just limited. Like what they learn in medical school is limited. I mean, I had to do a lot of outside education, even with my more holistic background of being a chiropractic physician, I had to do a lot of outside education, even for myself. So I just think that that's not happening as much in a medical setting because medical doctors are overworked They're They don't have a lot of time outside of the office to do this research. And that's just kind of the system they're working with. So it's kind of unfortunate on all angles. I don't want to put the blame on anyone specifically, but that's just what we're seeing. Yeah, it definitely goes deep. I mean, the first time I met my primary care and they said, oh, what do you focus on? I said, hormones. And they, he was very clear. He goes, oh, I don't do that. I don't know anything about that, which I mean, fair enough. I mean, there's a lot of areas of medicine that I don't yeah. do either. Right. So I'm like, I get it. But I thought, wow, as a primary care, you should, I feel you are the jack of all trades. Exactly. You should know, you should be able to sort of triage, manage, help with at least some hormones, especially as you said, one in seven is a, have PCOS, which means a lot of PCOS young women in their teens and twenties are going to walk through their door and say, oh, I don't know, my period is irregular and I'm gaining weight or I'm having a lot of facial hair or I have the cystic acne or all of the above. I don't know what's going on. Now, obviously, you don't have to have all those symptoms, as Natalie said, but if you come in with some of those keynotes, I would hope that they would think, ding, we should work this up further. So speaking of workup, let's talk about workup because that's, we know it's for a lot of people, they got no workup. They got a quick diagnosis and handed a pack of pills. So when you work somebody up, baseline, let's say baseline, what are the things you are recommending? Yeah. So we order, our baseline is about 21 different tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so I'm like, how many vials of blood can I safely draw from someone? <laughs> so we figured out a sweet spot with that. So our testing process kind of looks like our intake is we order about 21 tests. This looks like 
a basic CBC CMP lipid panel. We look at inflammatory markers like sed rate. Wait, wait, I got it. We got to go back. So CBC is complete blood count for those who don't know. Yes. Metabolic. So CBC, red and white blood cells, complete metabolic panel. That's like your electrolytes, your calcium, your glucose, kidney markers, lipids, obviously lipids, cholesterol. Yep. Lipid panel, inflammatory markers. So CRP, C-reactive protein and sed rate. Okay. SED, sed rate. Yes. SED, if you're writing this down, I love it. <laughs> An iron panel and ferritin. So ferritin is something that I'm not seeing run a lot. It's so, so important because A, it's an acute phase reactant. So that's an inflammatory marker in itself, but it's also a marker of the stored form of iron. So iron alone is not a complete picture of what your iron status is. So ferritin is something that I always, always, always run on all of our clients. And then hormones. So looking upstream, which no one's checking this, I don't understand why. Pregnenolone, we check on every patient. Progesterone, if it fits in their window around day 21 of their cycle or after they ovulate. Brain neural hormones, so LH, FSH, right? Pituitary hormones. We're checking DHEA, testosterone, total and free. And then a full thyroid panel. <laughs> Describe that. <laughs> yes. So a thyroid panel is not just TSH. TSH is a brain hormone. We check TSH, but we also check free and total T4, free and total T3, reverse T3. And then I, on all of our PCOS clients, we like to check antibodies. So thyroid antibodies, TPO, thyroglobulin. We discover a lot of autoimmunity when we do that. Like I said, three times more likely to have Hashimoto's. So a lot of times that, I think I might be forgetting insulin. one or two things. Insulin. Yep. Insulin. <laughs> we check LDH, so lactate dehydrogenase quite a bit. And then A1C, obviously. So those blood sugar markers for sure. When you do DHEA, do you do DHEA with S or no S? I do DHEA S. Okay. Just curious. And then CRP, do you do CRP HS or no HS? So we do both sometimes. So usually CRP and CRP high sensitivity, we do both just because I think that's a really good marker of cardiovascular health. And then in PCOS patients, I find that that is really helpful to see. And then also depending on their budget, we like to work with our clients on that. So if they can afford a little bit more of a comprehensive panel, my husband, Dr. Jake, he does, his panel is even more comprehensive than mine. <laughs> he does urinalysis on his panel. He does quite a few other things that I don't run on mine. But he's also dealing with a little bit of a different patient population within our practice. So that's another story, but his panel is even more comprehensive than mine. That's where I start with mine. And then I like to see a Dutch test on almost every female patient that I have in our practice. So a combination of that, organic acids and blood serum gives me a really good idea of what's happening in the blood, coming out to the urine, and then also just showing me their detox pathways in general and what that's looking like, how they're eliminating. Are they dealing with a heavy toxic burden? How's their liver? Things like that. I find that that's really helpful. And that's kind of the comprehensive approach we take. And then obviously, if they're dealing with gut-related symptoms, if they can afford it, if it's financially feasible, we'd love to look at a GI map. So that's something that we're commonly running to. That might be our second or third phase of testing. Yeah. Yeah. So GI map, for those who don't know, is a stool test. So basically you poop in a cup for science, but it's extremely thorough. It's six pages now of data around what is or isn't growing in your intestines. So you do actually learn a lot. You had mentioned a while ago about IBS and PCOS. And I had a patient, I would, it totally made me think of this. So not the GI map, there's a different test. Genova is the company and the test was the CDSA and they would take pictures of parasites if they found them. So if you had a worm, they'd take a picture. If you had 
Giardia, they would take a picture. So this patient had come in with PCOS, with lifelong IBS, and it turned out there she'd had several ride-along critters and they took pictures and put it in the results. And she was horrified and she remembered, I believe it was like a church type thing where she went to Mexico and build homes and volunteer and what have you. And she got pretty sick while she was there and never well since, but didn't put two and two together. And so she probably had these ride-along critters. She was in her early 20s all this time. And it was blown off as IBS and it turned out she had parasites. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> I should have added this to my list. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is a huge problem right now. And it, it probably has been forever, but we're just seeing it more and more. I think there's more awareness around parasites and there's more practitioners that are accepting that this is a possibility. Now, my mom, poor thing, had dealt with a pretty bad parasitic overgrowth last year, had physical pictures of parasites leaving her body, brought them to her doctor, showed him, and he basically was like, no, that's not a worm. And she's like, it was moving. (laughs) Like, what are you going to say that it is? So she was totally like denied that that's what she was dealing with. And it was months upon months of her passing these organisms. So, and we have seen this in a lot of our patients who are dealing with chronic issues, especially chronic anxiety or insomnia. Those are the two biggest things I start thinking about when I think parasites. So if someone's dealing with chronic insomnia, chronic anxiety, I almost always want to evaluate for parasites, but testing alone is not enough. I like to go based off symptoms too, because those little critters can hide and we oftentimes can't catch them in a stool test. So check and see how you feel around the full moon every month. Sounds a little crazy, but I'm telling you, look for the symptoms. If you are having trouble sleeping around the full moon, or if you have any anal or rectal itching, that's a big one. I like to point out because it's just not talked about. And then also excess anxiety around that time of the month. Those are like three huge signs of parasitic infections. So, and parasites are, they eat like you may be nutrient for example, you might have iron deficient anemia because you have parasites and they're eating the iron. They feed on iron. They feed on iron. Bacteria, viruses, parasites. Same with H. pylori. Yes, that's yeah. a big one. Yep. Yeah. People don't really think, oh, or maybe they get told you're deficient. Maybe they run a B12 or maybe they run an iron. Your primary care does. And they're like, here, here's take more iron. And you can never quite get it up, right? Like you keep taking this iron and you never quite move the needle where you're supposed to. And it's probably either you're not absorbing it, but why aren't you absorbing it? Or what else is eating it? What's taking it right from you? Absolutely. This happened with me too. I was resistant to iron supplementation for a really long time. And as soon as I started working on parasites, a lot of my iron deficiency symptoms started getting better. I was like, okay, this makes total sense. <laughs> like I tell my patients this, of course this makes sense. But yeah, that is something if your iron is resistant to supplementation or you have never investigated your low iron levels, look for gut infections, look for H. pylori, look for parasites, all the things. Yeah, and your primary care can do stool testing. It's not the same kind or nearly as thorough, but when I worked in a primary care clinic, we do, you, if, And it's usually reserved for whatever, some sort of diarrhea or traveler's diarrhea, so to speak. And so it's a quick stool test and they'll check for E. coli and H. pylori. It's usually a handful of things they're checking for really quickly, but it's definitely, please don't confuse that with a type of more extensive testing. And even if the more extensive testing comes up not showing things, but yet you have a number of gut symptoms, gas bloating, constipation, diarrhea, like your anal itching or et cetera, et cetera, a heartburn. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's 
They don't necessarily shed or come out 24-7, which is also a struggle for us as practitioners because we want to order the test and catch them when they're, if you have them, if when they're out and about, but they're not always out and about. Kind of like us as humans, we don't always leave our house. We're not out and about in the world 24-7. A lot of us are at home in our our homes. And so you wouldn't catch us if you were to... They find their little homes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, something that leads me to my next point is like, we treat people, not lab tests, not values. So if your lab values appear normal or your tests are negative, that doesn't mean that your symptoms are invalidated and that your symptoms are not real because it is sometimes a, a deep investigation process until you figure out what's really going on. And you also have to find the right practitioner for you. I mean, oftentimes people come to me and I literally tell them, this is way over my head. I'm going to have to pass you on to my husband. He is our doctor house in our practice. Like he gets all of our most difficult cases. But I literally tell people, I'm like, this is beyond what I can help you with. I'm going to have to pass you on for some further investigation because it's just out of my expertise, right? So that's something to remember too. Don't be discouraged by negative lab tests. Don't be discouraged by hearing that all of your labs are normal because oftentimes that is just a lack of appropriate diagnostic testing, which I found. Yeah. The other one is I know that some people love their primary care and they feel awkward or embarrassed or they have a hard time. If they're like, well, my doctor said everything was fine or normal, but I don't feel good at all. I always say, you know, it's you're just adding, to, you don't have to get rid of your primary care. Just add to your healthcare team. Find somebody else. Like your primary care doesn't do your massages. You have a massage therapist if you need a massage. So they've just added to your healthcare team. If you see a chiropractor for adjustments, if you get acupuncture, if you've ever had physical therapy, your primary care and your OBGYN might be separate. They're not, may not be the same person. You're just adding to your healthcare team. And so the same applies to this. When you need more extensive, maybe a well-rounded lookup about yourself, getting more to the root cause, you don't have to switch doctors or practitioners. You're just adding to your healthcare team by finding somebody where this is their expertise. Absolutely. Such a good point. Yeah. Such a good point. Yeah. All right. So I know you are not everybody's healthcare practitioner, but the next logical question that I just want to touch on is somebody's going to say, well, what do I do? Like I have been given the pill or I've opted not to do, I don't know what to do. I obviously, you've given a ton of great information about PCOS, lab testing people are now gonna request or try to request. But when you get this information back, maybe just generally give ideas of where you go with your patients so they have an understanding of how your approach is a lot more thorough, more root cause based, maybe compared to the the six, eight minute visit. Yeah. So something that we always try to do is address lifestyle overall. So I like to start with what you do the very first thing you wake up. So something that we always tell all of our patients is make sure you're getting your eyes on or exposed to natural light within 20 minutes of waking, right? At least for 10 minutes. I tell people, if you want to eat your breakfast outside, eat your breakfast outside, get in front of a window. If you live in a cold climate, get one of those little hatch devices. If you live in a cloudy climate, right? Or one of those happy lights get your eyes exposed to light as much as you can. So start your day off right, right? Then start implementing strategic lifestyle strategies like a 10-minute walk after meals. It's one of the best things that you can do for your blood sugar, for your hormones overall. 
get in a good rhythm with your sleep patterns, right? So go to bed and wake up at the same time every day, get that circadian rhythm going in a nice way. And then also we talk about diet quite a bit with our clients, and this looks different for everyone, depending on what they're dealing with, right? But eating overall an anti-inflammatory diet can be really, really helpful. And then we also think about stress. So managing stress. So a lot of times this looks like we prescribe meditation, right? So meditate (laughs) for five to 10 minutes a day, whenever you can elevate your feet for 10 minutes at the end of the day to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system. We might have people do vagal nerve exercises. So gargling, singing loudly, things like that. And then we also implement a lot of essential oils into our protocols too, as far as a lot of patients are really having supplement fatigue. They don't, or they can't take another capsule. They don't want to take capsules. So that's where we found quality essential oils have been really helpful. We'll have them apply them over their adrenal glands. We'll have them inhale them at the beginning of the day, diffuse it during their work day. And it just kind of builds in this self-care routine. So that's actually been really helpful and made a huge difference for a lot of our patients is utilizing evidence-based solutions like that, right? So very targeted solutions. And then we might also look at their relationships, what their inner circle looks like, right? So if you have a toxic work environment or a toxic relationship with a spouse, parent, friend, we might suggest that they reevaluate those close relationships. We've actually had to tell clients before to quit one of their side jobs. We're like, you cannot work three jobs. Like if you want to continue seeing us, you're going to have to reevaluate this. If it's not like going to financially hurt your family, you can't continue living this way and us being able to help you appropriately if you're working 90 hours a week, right? So all different assets or areas of people's lives can kind of contribute to this. And those are all areas that we try to address and practice. But I'd say the biggest for PCOS are going to be those blood sugar management strategies, right? So not eating naked carbs, going for walks after meals, eating high fiber meals, incorporating lots of cruciferous vegetables. And those are all things I like to focus on. And then obviously targeted movement. So resistance training several times a week, plenty of walks, plenty of restorative movements. So that may be yoga or Pilates, whatever feels best to their body at that time. And remember the spectrum, right? Depending on where you're at on that spectrum and what phase you're at, you might only be able to do restorative movements and that's okay. Especially when people are highly inflamed, having them do resistance training when their sed rate is 55 probably is not going to yield positive results. I have one gal who she can only walk five to 10 minutes a day without being in excruciating pain. So we're starting her at low level sauna, low and slow, five to 10 minutes a day of walking and stretching as much as she can, because that's all she can tolerate right now. So keep in mind, like we want to meet people where they're at, not where we want them to be, and then work with them based on where they're at too. I love that. And then eventually, or even if it's necessary in the start, do you incorporate in supplements or medications as needed? Yeah. So supplements for sure. We use a lot of herbal therapies. I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of the biggest things. A lot of herbs for my insulin resistant clients, especially we love things like berberine and inositol. Those are really, really effective. And then if you're dealing with a gut related issue, we also use a lot of natural antimicrobials and things like that in our practice. And then some bioidenticals and things like that if people need them. But oftentimes we don't need to refer out for those prescriptions and things like that because we often don't end up needing them for people. But if they do, we're always like, okay, we think this might be helpful. Maybe you should ask your endocrinologist about this. Maybe you should kind of like expand upon your care team. Let's say they need thyroid hormones. We bring other practitioners kind of into the care team for that. 
make sure we get their a second opinion there because we're not endocrinologists, obviously. But based on our experience, we can maybe suggest that they ask their doctor about that. And then they kind of collectively will make that decision. So that's a really cool part about what we do is that we can, we're kind of guides. We're kind of like navigators for our clients and we help point them in the right direction. And ultimately they are in charge. We always say we work for you. It's not the other way around. So we are here to support you wherever you're at and whatever you need at the moment. And that might just be coaching and that might just be a helpful hand or a listening ear. So it just, we really try to provide whatever our patients are needing at that moment. And sometimes it's a detective, right? Sometimes it's a friend. (laughs) Sometimes it's just a guide. So that's how we practice and that's what we do. And then I do also work a lot. I would say about 50% of my practice is infertility clients. So a PCOS is a chunk of it, but a lot of it is just infertility clients, whether they may have PCOS or not. That's a whole nother thing. But Infertility is something that we are seeing more and more of, and that I think is becoming more and more prevalent, unfortunately. But what I will say about that is if you're listening and you are dealing with that, there are 100% solutions for you, whether it be natural or not. We are having a lot of success with the more natural routes for infertility. So, oh, I love hearing that. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, the next obvious question, of course, is where do people find you? Yes, I love <laughs> now it. Now that everyone's all excited. I love it. How do it. they find you on social? How do they become a client of yours? Tell us all the deets. Okay. So on Instagram, you can find me at the PCOS doc, T-H-E.PCOS.doc. And then our website is PCOSdoc.com. Those are the two main places we live. If you ever need anything, feel free to reach out. And I do offer one-on-one coaching. We offer group classes, you name it. So lots of different options depending on your budget and where you're at right now. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. You're so welcome. You have just given so much education. I know people are taking mad notes and I appreciate everything you just have offered. Thank you so much. I'm so excited we got to do this. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.